All the Comanche bands joined in the raiding. The raiders went south in entire family groups, taking along their women and children. Loosely allied, they set up base camps, usually in the eastern Cordillera. These camps became collecting points for loot and captives. They were located about halfway up the mountainsides, in rough country close to the Mexican settlements. From them, small war parties ranged widely and often ravaged one region for months or even years. It has been incredible to some historians that the presence of Comanches did not arouse the whole Mexican countryside. But communications were very poor, and the isolated communities had no history of, nor capacity for, collective action. Many, if not most, of the small depredations and killings were not even reported. Sometimes the Comanches ravaged for many days before the surrounding territory was even alerted. The raided regions included provinces that had been pacified by the Spaniards in the 16th century, as well as towns and ranches established in the middle 1700s. Comanches regularly rode near large settlements, such as Monclova and Mentoré, but they skirted the actual towns. Confined spaces and protecting walls were alien to the horse Amerindian. The urban nature of the Mexican culture permitted the civilization to survive, although fearful punishment was wreaked upon the outlying districts of what was essentially a stock-raising economy. The new appearance of raiding Indios in the long-settled, long-pacified regions of Coahuila and Nuevo León confused many Mexicans who believed that the attackers originated in the blue-shadowed Sierra. Mexicans found it hard to believe that the raiders came from north of the Red River and continued to confuse Comanches with Apaches, who were also extending their depredations through Sonora and Chihuahua in these years. By the 1840s, the situation was worse than it had been during the preceding hundred years. The Mexicans kept few official records and made no summation of the destructions. Some localities, such as some of the great estancias, maintained accounts of losses. One large hacienda claimed that the horses they lost numbered into the hundreds of thousands. There was never any general recapitulation of the loss of life, but hundreds of families suffered. Mexican dead ran in the thousands, and many hundreds of captives were carried away, most never to be heard from again. Litanies of protest rose continually, but these were useless because of the internal condition of the Mexican nation. The Mexican army, occupied by power struggles in the South, also soon became engaged in the North when Mexico and the United States finally went to war over Texas. During this war, that army was virtually destroyed. For three decades, there was no effective federal force on the frontiers, and while local authorities tried to meet defense needs, their efforts were never coordinated and were always inadequate. The government did at least recognize the problem. When Mexico ceded the lands between the Sabin and the Pacific to the United States in 1848, one clause the Mexicans demanded was the prevention of Indian raidings from the territories that now became part of the United States. Although the Mexican frontier was vital to the emergence of the modern mestizo nation, the frontier never significantly intruded upon the consciousness of Mexican intellectuals and elites. For them, the Indian troubles did not pose a serious threat, but were merely another minor problem of an era filled with despair and humiliations. The brunt of Comanche terror fell mainly upon a helpless, already oppressed peasantry, which was not integrated into the urban civilization. That fact alone tells much about the state of the health of that civilization, which was slowly moving toward the cataclysm of 20th century revolution. And that is from Comanches, 1974, by the great T.R. Fahrenbach. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Joshua Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. 
Josh, thank you for reading that. Um, I wanted to start by recognizing that it's been a while since we last filmed. It has. Um, just because it's been so busy and because of travel and other things. So. Summer vacation yeah. uh, afflicts us all. Exactly. Yes. But it's great to be back. Uh, we do Likewise. have a lot to cover. Uh, but first, I really wanted you to unpack the relevance of that those paragraphs of the book that you just read. Could well, you share a little bit of that with us? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you, Melissa. It's good to be back with you as well. Uh, it's been a long summer. And uh, actually, as we record this, this episode is going to be released on Monday, July 17th. So uh, for all of you in the future, welcome. But we're actually recording <laughs> it several days beforehand. Uh, you know, I, I was interested in this passage. Uh, and, and look, T.R. Fehrenbach, uh, still the greatest of Texas historians, uh, is always worth reading. So if you have read Fire and Blood, his history of Mexico, obviously Lone Star, his history of Texas, and then and then this book uh, on the Comanches that he put out in 74. Uh, it's, it, it's well worth the time. That tradition of narrative uh, history making uh, is uh, effectively lost as kind of academia has overtaken a lot of um, uh, kind of the, the, the repository of knowledge and understanding of history. I wanted to read this particular passage uh, because I thought it illuminated a lot of very interesting things um, that are still in evidence today. Uh, you know, we don't have time to go through uh, the entire book or a lot of the other literature on this topic, but uh, it's it's very interesting. You know, what Fehrenbach talks about when he when he uh, talks about kind of the Mexican reaction to uh, the Comanche uh, depredations. And so anybody who's gone to South Texas, especially Southwest Texas, mm -hmm. so we're talking Brewster County, Presidio County, kind of the Big Bend region, um, there are a lot of uh, Indian traces uh, through there. So it, it really, you know, as he alluded to, it's not just Comanches, it was Comanches, it was Lapan Apaches, it was um, uh, Humanos, I think, uh, originally, although they kind of uh, d dissipated over time. Um, and so, and so this idea that they would come and raid through uh, was not was not historically new, but it was a surprise to a lot of the Mexicans of, of this area, especially Nuevo León. Now Nuevo León is is settled as as he mentioned in in the 1600s, uh, basically, and actually a lot of the initial settlement happens in the late 16th century, so the late 1500s. So not too long, maybe a generation or two after the original Spanish conquest. So you would think it would be something, it would be territory that was well secured and well covered. And what, what emerges uh, in the late 18th century and, and, and through the 19th century is that it's not. Um, and uh, Mexico actually, you know, c continues to have, I guess, what, what we used to call Indian troubles. You know, with, with, with the Yaquis, you know, the Tarahumaras, um, uh, a lot of the uh, insurrectionary violence in, in in Yucatan clear clear through to the 20th century, which the United States does not. And I think a lot of that is a function of uh, sort of the looser and frankly weaker nature of of uh, of the Mexican state. Um, uh, but but you know what 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 Fehrenbach puts his finger on is the inability to organize uh, against mm. it. I, I think there's two things that, that that are really worth pulling out. One is one is that there that there isn't strong social organization to counter uh, what you saw here. Um, so versus he talks about in this book later on, and we don't have time to read it, uh, the kind of the difference in the Texan response, which is actually to form ranger companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, now we're speaking this year, 2023, is is the centennial. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, it's the centennial, bicentennial. Sorry, math, not not my strong suit. Uh, <laughs> it's the bicentennial of the Texas Rangers. Uh, so, so, but you had these ranging companies, which were, you know, at least in inception, um, centrally authorized but locally organized groups of, of, of men who would go out and range the frontier and, and, and secure it uh, against this kind of thing. Um, and Texas has always had a robust tradition of it, uh, you know, and this and this tradition continues clear through into uh, again into the 20th century. The Rangers still exist. Obviously, they're they're, they're a qualitatively different force now, uh, 
Uh, but there's nothing like it on the Mexican side. There's some, there was something about the shape and the structure of Mexican civics which prevented uh, that sort of uh, civic organization even in self-defense. It doesn't mean that that self-defense didn't happen. Um, you know, there's, there's there's one example that I can think of. Uh, you know, we talked about Santiago Vidari on a previous uh, episode, like, like two or three episodes ago, yeah. which I guess is like four months ago now at this point. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, the Vidari family uh, in uh, uh, just north of San Ignacio, Texas, which is a very small, very beautiful border town that everybody should visit if they're interested in, in that kind of thing. Um, there's there's actually a blockhouse uh, there that was that was built by the Vidari family. It's on a, it's called Los Los Corralitos. Um, it's on private land at this point, but you can still visit it. And it's uh, we may have talked about this actually. I think in a in a preceding podcast. Um, but that branch of the Vidaris, which is my ancestors, uh, actually built this blockhouse in um, I believe the 1750s, and and I think they spent every night there for for over half a century. Uh, I, I don't think the, the like the family moved into an unsecured ranch house uh, until until sometime in the early 19th century, and it was specifically because. Of the lawlessness of the countryside, so that was that was the refuge that people mm. had to um, uh, you know people had to kind of find the security and 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 make it for themselves. And every home had to be a fortress. You saw something similar on the Carolina frontier, but again, the difference is that there was civic organization that could eventually push that lawlessness and the fullness of time back, which never really happened to the same extent uh, in Mexico. In, in San Ignacio itself, uh, there is a fort, the Trevino Uribe Fort. Uh, they're, they're not my Trevinos, uh, so, but uh, which which probably explains why they have a monument that lasts uh, to them. But uh, that, that that too was a um, kind of a communal self defense uh, fortress, and everybody you know would would spend the night uh, in the fort, and and then you would go out and work during the day. And of course, okay. you know, the, the Indians would, would would come during the day as well. I think that's that that phenomenon continues to persist, the inability to self-organize in defense against depredation, um, uh, yeah. which now it's not Indians, now it's cartels, now it's governmental right. lawlessness. And, uh, you know, kind of one of the themes of this podcast is that we see the same things happening in different guises over and over and over across yeah. several hundred years of history. Um, and that's how we have to best understand it. Yeah, thank you. That was very fascinating, Josh. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you. I think you also just created like the perfect segue to continue talking about some of the disorder that's going on in Mexico, the dysfunction that is still happening there. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's for that reason that we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, along with other uh, conservative organizations, have recently decided to launch a new coalition. And uh, I want to talk about this coalition a little bit more, but basically, just for our listeners, it's going to be launched on Monday, and it's a new initiative where we list some premises, and what it aims to do is recognize the state of dysfunction that Mexico is in and recognize that it's continuing to plunge into deeper levels of violence and corruption and leftist authoritarianism. Man, I can't talk today. Um, but I think that it would be interesting if we could look at each of the premises, uh, each of the bullet put points that are currently in our statement. Sure. And we could you know, fill those in with some examples that we have, many of them new from recent months. Yeah. And so before we jump into that, Josh, is there anything else that you want to say about the coalition to introduce it? Yeah. Uh, look, uh, you know, the, this. So again, this podcast is, is dropping Monday. We're, we're recording on the previous Thursday. So this, this will be news today. Yeah, uh, you right. should see at, uh, at, at all the various coalition members' websites. 
Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is us, America First Policy Institute, the Heritage Foundation, Center for Renewing America, Patria Unida, Center for a Secure Free Society, uh, all of which, and then we have a variety of individual signatories as well, have all come together uh, to, uh, and we're very grateful to them, uh, so thank you uh, for, for joining us in this, to assert new premises on the U.S.-Mexico relationship, which is long overdue. Uh, I want to make clear what the statement is and isn't. Um, it is it is an assertion of how things are uh, and, uh, and, and to, to an extent why they are the way they are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's not a statement of common policy solutions. Uh, there is a heterodoxy of, of preferred solutions among the various groups. Uh, and I'll tell you directly, I think that's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing that you know we have one set of solutions that we prefer. Um, various of the other groups have others. Um, but what's important is that we all agree on what's happening uh, uh, between the United States and Mexico. And we know that because of those things, there is a stale policy consensus that has gripped Washington, D.C. and the relevant policy sphere for way too long that, that absolutely needs to be overturned. Yeah. Um, so, so if I could, I'd, I'd love to read off the, uh, yeah. the, 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 the bullet points. I mean, uh, so, so it's called the Conservative U.S.-Mexico Policy Coalition. We've issued this statement on U.S.-Mexico relations. Uh, I'll hold it up for the camera. Uh, it's a real it, – it feels official now that it's got letterhead. <laughs> I'll make sure to link it as well for thank, our listeners. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, uh, look, you know, we, 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 assert, we assert a series of propositions. Uh, uh, number one is that the Mexican government is not an ally of the United States and can no longer be properly described as a partner. We'll, we should, we'll talk more about that yeah. momentarily. We also say that the Mexican government and Mexican criminal cartels exist in conscious and willing symbiosis up to and including the Mexican presidency itself. Uh, we say that the Mexican government is failing in its obligation to exercise full sovereignty over its own territory and citizenry. It's uh, unquestionable, especially mm. to Mexicans themselves. Uh, we also say that the Mexican government is failing in its obligation to preserve its territory from use as a base of operation against its neighbors, basic obligation of, of uh, sovereignty, which they're failing to meet. The Mexican government is failing to defend Mexican civic institutions and is increasingly antagonistic toward a free Mexican civil society. Again, that's something we've seen with uh, particularly the Morena regime uh, has come in, but not just them. Uh, you know, It started some time back. We talk about the Mexican government being a willing partner in a regional authoritarian leftist alliance that is fundamentally anti-American, um, uh, which is unfortunately true. We talk about the Mexican government actively interfering in the domestic electoral processes of the United States, uh, which is something we'll be talking much more about in months to come. Uh, and then we've got three closing bullets uh, that uh, talk about uh, things that the United States need to change. You know, Our traditional policy preference for decoupling Mexican state corruption from U.S.-Mexico relations has failed. Uh, our traditional preference for decoupling trade and security issues within the U.S.-Mexico relationship have failed. And our traditional preference for considering the state of Mexican civil society irrelevant to U.S.-Mexico relations has failed. And so there, there are a variety of, of uh, you know, I think, logical conclusions that flow from this. But just asserting these things, you know, talking about what's happening, you know, telling the truth with candor about, uh, you know, what's going on vis-a-vis Mexico, a country that I know you and I have a great fondness for and would love to say, you know, positive things about, especially in the state sphere. Um, uh, this is the first step toward getting to a place uh, where we can, um, uh, you know, start to make good policy that actually makes good change. And I think it is notable that it's not only made, you know, uh, major conservative organizations, maybe all the major conservative organizations on the national level that have signed on to the statement, but there's also Mexican organizations that have signed on to it as well. Right. Um, uh, because uh, th- there is a recognition, not to speak for them, but I think there's a recognition that all the problems identified here uh, have as their first and primary victim Mexicans themselves. I agree. And we aren't just, right, we aren't just listing these problems 
problems. Uh, we have plenty of new occurrences that corroborate our statement as well as old. Some of yes. them we've talked about on this podcast and some of these are new developments. So I'm excited to jump into them. Yeah. Um, but the first bullet that you mentioned is how the Mexican government can no longer be considered an ally or a partner to the United States. Right. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, I mean, you know, the DEA can no longer station their plane in Mexico. Uh, Foreign agents have been stripped of their diplomatic immunity. There was a suspension of an anti-narcotics unit that there was in Mexico. Yeah. Um, and then recently, I think we also talked about this, but AMLO accusing the Pentagon on spying. Um, yes. Is there anything right. else that you want to add to that? I mean, the, I mean, the list is long, right? The list is very uh, long. And, and it's so interesting. I mean, you and I have had conversations in Mexico City in which we've talked with U.S. government personnel who have expressed horror at the thought yeah. that uh, their cooperation with the Mexicans could dry up. Um, yeah. but, uh, but, but the sad reality is that uh, if you, know, you rewind the clock back to, say, 2010, to pick a year, there was robust cooperation, intelligence sharing, yeah. um, you know, allowing U.S. operations on Mexican soil on behalf of Mexican state sovereignty, mind you. Uh, and all that, all that's gone. Uh, and now, when when uh, the Mexican side talks about partnership, they typically talk about cooperating and kind of this on and off, uh, you know, migratory flow that they that they assess. I think I think accurately because they've taken our measure is one of the political levers that they can use. Right. Um, uh, so there, there was a New York Times article uh, as we're recording this again on Thursday, uh, you know, prior to the 17th, um, uh, maybe about 48 hours ago, in yeah, which, in which, uh, it, yeah, right, relatively new, that talked about uh, uh, the Mexican state uh, cooperating and basically shutting down uh, migrant flows post post Title 42, which everybody yeah. expected was going to be kind of this epical disaster. And actually, it hasn't been good, but it also hasn't been, uh, you know, you know, quite the catastrophe. And and within the article, I thought this was incredibly. Incredibly interesting within the article uh, for it to make it in the New York Times was the speculation, um, which I think is correct, that uh, that one reason that the Mexican state is is suddenly mm -hmm. being cooperative on migration, which they which they really haven't for the most part, but in this particular case they are, is because they are buying American silence, Biden administration silence on all the other stuff that's going on from the importation of Cuban intelligence agents to the facilitation of fentanyl trafficking to the governmental cooperation with cartels. And so, yeah. and so looking at all that, um, uh, it's, it's, it's impossible to describe uh, Mexican officialdom as a partner. We do have partners in Mexico. There's plenty of well-meaning Mexicans uh, who, who want to do the right thing and are real patriots, um, but they're not in charge of the state right now. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was planning on bringing it up later, but that is the perfect place to put it. Please. Um, well, the second bullet that we have is about how the Mexican government and the Mexican criminal cartels work together at all levels, all the way up to the president himself. Mm -hmm. And so we know this because obviously the current president has never said anything negative about the cartels. He's even showed sympathy for them. Um, the scene loans in particular. Exactly. Yeah, and, right. and, and recently he also you know, warned us that he would basically defend the cartels against the Americans if yes. he had to. That's right. And he has criticized the DEA for operating without their authorization on our soil. Um, he called it arrogant. I think we talked about this. Yeah. But one thing that we haven't gotten to touch on yet is how AMLO recently said that he will support a proposal to work with the cartels. Um, he was asked by a journalist about this proposal from a spokesperson from the National Collective of Victims in Sonora, who made a call to nine drug cartels mm -hmm. um, to achieve some sort of social pact that will help them find their fa family members, stop the violence, and, and seek peace out. And when he was asked about this, AMLO said, 
I agree, and I would support such a pact. Right. So, I mean, why do you think this is problematic? It's uh, well, gosh, I mean, where do you start? The um, there, there is there is sort of this this um, this mythos in and among not all Mexican civic space, but a lot of the Mexican civic space, and we have to remember that that, that AMLO is fundamentally a product of the old PRI machine. He's right. a leftist machine politician. Who kind of came out of pre, and so and so when he gets his political education, which is which is really 1970s, um, you know, going into the 1980s, uh, there is this this belief that uh, that the that the criminals and the state had achieved a very positive symbiosis. You know, mm-hmm. the, think of the career of the, of the late Carlos Carlos Hen Gonzalez, right? Who, right, who basically controlled pre throughout uh, certainly throughout the, the last decade of his life in the 1990s. Uh, a, a well-known, um, you know, partner of uh, you know the famous Senor de Cielos, and um, uh, you know, recipient of drug money funds, which he used then to kind of plow into his political machine. Uh, th- th- there's a belief that they can go back to that. Uh, that 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 what they can do is they can they can um, they can have civic peace. The cartels can do their thing, sort of exist within their allotted sphere, and uh, you know they can they can traffic. They can traffic drugs and people to uh, to, to El Norte ad infinitum because uh, you know what does the Mexican state care? Um, but if you do that, if you arrived at this pact, uh, then, then then you basically purchase civic peace. Uh, it, it's it's you know, even 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 being charitable, which we shouldn't be, but even being charitable and assuming that this is just a product of naivete. It's an impossibility at this point. Uh, none of the cartels, you know, you know, 20, 30 years down the road yeah. in the year 2023 are going to surrender the civic power that they have at this point. I mean, these are organizations with, with light infantry and anti-air capabilities and IEDs, which we'll talk about, um, uh, but real armed forces that control, uh, you know, 35 to 45 percent of Mexican territory at this point. Uh, and, and, and there's no structural incentive for any of them to do that. There's also no effective Mexican state that, that could impose it, you know, under the, under the previous regime with kind of this, uh, uh, who called it uh, La Dictadura Perfecta? It was, um, was it Octavio, Octavio Paz or something like that? It was, it's, it's the perfect dictatorship, basically, yeah. because, it's, uh, because it's, it, it's a bureaucratic dictatorship, mm-hmm. right? And so it's one that, that had really mastered the art of, of transfers of power, which has all since you know, fallen apart since 1994. Um, uh, but that that structure doesn't exist anymore. Also, so it's it's completely impossible to envision it. But when 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 Amlo, when the current president of Mexico, is talking about a pact he wants with the cartels, mm-hmm. uh, that's what he that's what he almost certainly, I'd say ninety nine percent, has in mind is to return to this perceived golden era. The money flowed in. The cartels did their thing. Mexicans weren't getting massacred by the you know by, by the boatload uh, uh, every other day, and so it was it was a putative low level of crime. Uh, like all myths, it has uh, you know some rooting in reality, but uh, but what's unrealistic is the expectation that they could ever go to that. They can't. The tiger's out of the cage, uh, and unfortunately, um, I think any you know realist appreciation of what's going on is uh, that there's only going to be one winner in the end. Uh, either right. either the cartels and the forces of anarchy are going to eat the state, which is unfortunately is what I'm betting on, uh, or um, the state will reassert itself. It will have to do so in a fashion that is probably inconsistent with liberality and uh, you know the places where Mexico has thought it's been heading for the past 25, 30 years. Yeah, so, I agree. I'm yeah. betting on that too, unfortunately. That's too bad. I saw some speculation in the comments about whether it was ignorance or just criminal tolerance, but I mean, you're putting the power of controlling violence in the hands of the cartels, and that's very weak and very dangerous. Yeah. So there's no reason. That, that there's just no incentive to trust. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, set aside that that half the people involved in the cartels are. 
uh, you know, probably high-functioning sociopaths, um, uh, you know, even if they were fully rational, there's no reason they would agree to it. Yeah. Well, uh, one more thing on, on this bullet before we move on about the Mexican government working with the cartels mm -hmm. is a story that I first heard from you, and it's about the these electoral action groups um, from the pre-party that were kidnapped by organized crime oh, sure. uh, to force them to reveal their strategies for the June 6th election. Yes. Um, and also to make sure that they wouldn't get in the way of the victory of Ruben Rocha Moya, which was um, in Sinaloa, the right? Morena, yeah, yeah, the yeah, Morena yeah. Party candidate and the yeah. Sinaloense party. That's right. That's right. Uh, fascinating. Uh, I, I think we have talked about it before, and I've certainly written about yeah. it at texaspolicy.com. Um, uh, but it's a story that, that I've heard from multiple sources at this point. First place I heard it was from a, a Mexican newspaper editor, but the very short version, um, uh, to avoid repeating myself, is that, uh, is that apparently um, uh, last year, last year, two years ago, 2021 actually, yeah. sorry, June, so almost... time, time continues to accelerate. Uh, in, in June 2021, um, uh, the Sinaloan cartel basically uh, kidnapped all the election workers and party officials from the non-Morena party. So, so, so PRI and PAN and, you know, these, these tinier parties, uh, all their people were rolled up. They weren't killed, but they were told that they would be mm. if they went on record with it. And, uh, and effectively, that's how Morena won in the state of Sinaloa was uh, by having the cartel um, yeah. abduct everybody else. Which That's is one a, strategy. It's one, it's, it's one approach to it. Um, uh, uh, I guess, you know, we should thank God that they didn't actually kill the other people, but uh, but it's still, um, you know, so that, that, that kind of thing happens often. Uh, yeah. You know, you think about uh, Adana Gusto, the Secretario de um, Gobernación, I believe, mm -hmm. Gobernación, uh, uh, who is, 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 is well known to have handed over, you know, the, the, the Tabasco state police personnel mm -hmm. files uh, to um, cartel members. It just over and over and over you see this happen. Yeah. yeah. So I'll jump into the third bullet, and that is that the Mexican government is failing in its obligation to exercise full sovereignty over its own territory mm -hmm. and citizenry. And we've talked about this. Uh, we know that it's estimated that 35 to 40 percent of Mexican territory is under direct cartel rule. Correct. Um, but recently in a mañanera, AMLO kind of let it slip that uh, narcos respect us at checkpoints. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. So Amazing. I think I think this was like a month ago at this point. But he was boasting about how narcos respect um the teams that are pro promoting his government social programs, and they are given permission to pass through the illegal drug cartel checkpoints. And so this is very interesting because he's acknowledging that not all of Mexico is under direct state control. And he's also acknowledging that uh, that the uh, that the cartels see the ruling Morena party as, as one of them. Yeah. That, that's why they're allowed to pass freely through checkpoints, because Morena and the cartels are working together. But this is a claim obviously, that he used to deny and probably still does. Right. But right. Um, he let this slip, which I think is very funny. Um, and it shows us that I don't know whether like the cartels are respecting the government or vice versa or both. But it, it proves our point that we've been talking about for a long time. It does. It, you know, and I, th I, think, I think it gets to two, to two things. One, one in the statement itself, which is, that, which is that you have to understand that the cartels and the government are, are, are not necessarily all that different uh, at yeah. this point. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's possible to oversimplify it. But, uh, you know, if you need a rule of thumb and kind of a heuristic for understanding it, you just have to know that they're, they're, they're different sides of the same, the same die. Uh, the, the the other thing, you know, in terms of responsibility to uh, control um, to control your territory, uh, and, and this goes to the, the the next bullet too, which is mm -hmm. the obligation to preserve your territory as a base of, uh, from being a base of operations against your neighbors. You know, in the in the Fahrenbach quote that we started this podcast with, uh, you know, he mentions 
the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848, yeah. and one of the clauses in it is that the Mexicans expected the United States to exercise full control and sovereignty over its own territory and not allow it to be used as a base of operations against Mexico. Mm. In that case, uh, in the context of Indian raids. Um, but uh, the, the, I think there's an irony in that, in that that was a Mexican demand. We agreed to it because it was a legitimate, a very just Mexican demand. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, but now, fast forward 150 years, 200 years, whatever, whatever it is, 180 years, I guess. And, uh, uh, and, and, and now we see uh, just a kind of a flip in the situation where it is, it is the Mexican state that chooses, yeah. positively chooses, not to exercise control over its territory and therefore positively chooses to allow its use as a base of operations against the United States. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into the fourth point. But really quick, I wanted to talk about this article. I also printed it out um, for you to read off of if you would like to. But I think this helps us go into this third point about mm -hmm. how the government doesn't have full sovereignty over its, over its territory. And a lot of people already know that. We've talked about in this podcast the infighting, the fighting over plazas, um, how they seek to control different places in Mexico. And so obviously we know, like, the cartel rules these areas. Yes. Um, there's no denying that. But what we recently saw is we saw this article about the drug plantels that the the drug cartels planting those bombs um in Tlajomulco, which killed six people yes. four, four of them were police officers yes and so now we're seeing you know cartels killing law enforcement with explosive devices can you go into that a yeah. little bit yeah well no so, so so not the first time so so this is from this yeah. is an associated press report uh, the journalist's name is Mark Stevenson. Uh, I don't know him, but uh, this is this is actually a good a good context-rich report. Uh, so it stands out to me and uh, kind of the universe of Mexico reporting, which is usually not very good. But this yeah. is actually a pretty good story. Yeah. Uh, and so and so the headline is: Roadway bombs planted by drug cartel in Mexico kill four police officers and two civilians. And you're right; it's in a town called uh, Tlajomulco. Uh, Tlajomulco. Um, uh, which I've never heard of, uh, but, uh, but 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 it's in Jalisco State. Jalisco yeah. uh, is, is is a violence racked uh, portion. You know, it and Guerrero and Michoacan, uh, arguably not necessarily, but arguably some of the most violent uh, parts of Mexico. And so and so basically, the 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 bottom line is this: is that um, uh, it, it was a it was a multiple IED ambush. And so yeah. and so when you think about um, you know, kind of the U.S. experience with that, you know, thinking about what happened in like Anbar province in Iraq mm. or um, in, in, in Helmand in, in South Afghanistan, like the IED uh, challenge was, was, was the big challenge to assertion of, you know, kind of legitimate sovereign authority in, in, in both places. So, so, so the fact that, that the cartels uh, have, or one cartel, I, I, I can kind of guess what it is, it's probably Nueva Generacion, although they don't yeah. say it in the news article, that's yeah, probably them. Um, uh, is, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact that they're moving uh, to this tactic suggests a uh, capacity to learn tactically, uh, an operational sophistication uh, that will only continue to grow. And again, you know, you know we talk about these, these armed groups um, and the capacities that they've exhibited over the past several years. Uh, you know, I've mentioned anti-air, light infantry. Um, they also have this, this weird indigenous light armored vehicle production uh, capacity. Um, uh, and so, and so now we're now we're, now we're getting to uh, to IEDs, and I, I want to read some passages if you don't mind yeah, um, from do. from this news article because uh, again, it just it really drives home the state of what's happening in Mexico. Um, you know, you know the the, the the IEDs, the multiple IEDs that um, uh, destroyed four vehicles, uh, I think killed uh, killed six, wounded fourteen. Um, 
uh, were, you know, they're, they're, the, the article says they're military style. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there were eight IEDs. One of them didn't go off, but seven went off, which is, which is, which is an incredibly, again, you have to think that, there is, that there's a real sophistication in, uh, in, in the manufacturer, the emplacement, the detonation uh, they of, deton- of all this. They detonated them remotely, right? Uh, probably, yeah, yeah, which is, which is fairly common. But again, in Mexico, hitherto, you haven't needed uh, kind of the anti-IED measures that you would have uh, elsewhere. So like American mm-hmm. forces uh, in, in Iraq, uh, for example, like, you know, I can speak to this, uh, not firsthand, but knowing people who, who went through it, um, uh, you would basically have um, signals, um, uh, I don't know what you call like, but, but like signals countermeasures. So, mm-hmm. so if there was a remote de- detonation via cell phone or a radio signal, uh, you would you would basically block it or fuzz it out if mm-hmm. you were near the ID. Uh, anyway, uh, so 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 part of this um, uh, uh, the, the, these IDs, it's worth it's worth um, uh, illuminating that the that the people who were attacked along with the law enforcement was actually a volunteer group that was yeah. looking for missing. Mexicans, uh, and so there have been a series of massacres across Mexico. The figure given in here, in this article, which is probably, unfortunately, relatively accurate, is that there's 110,000, an estimated 110,000 uh, Mexicans who have been um, uh, disappeared yeah. uh, by by cartel-related violence. And when we say cartel-related violence, uh, I do mean related because the cartels are doing a lot of the disappearing, but so is the army, so is local law enforcement, yeah. uh, so is you know pretty much any institution of power is has been you know brutalizing Mexicans. So there's an element of extra tragedy in this is that the people who were attacked were folks who were looking for missing loved ones who were already yeah. killed, and so now they add That's to the so ranks. It, it, it's it, it's terrible. Let me read this though. Um, uh, because uh, the, the the piece when you when, when you go in actually uh, gives a thumbnail of all the times IEDs have been employed and known to have been employed and the known parts and important asterisks uh, really just in the past you know 12 to 24 months. IEDs also wounded, this is from the article, IEDs also wounded 10 soldiers in the neighboring state of Michoacan in 2022 and killed a civilian. Uh, This past Tuesday, a cartel used a car bomb to kill a Guardia Nacional officer in Guanajuato. Guanajuato is supposed to be very safe, uh, by the way. Um, And Monday in Guerrero, uh, 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 another cartel battled security forces, uh, commandeered a police armor truck, and used it to ram down the gates of the state legislature. Um, uh, That's an insurrection overrunning a legislature. Uh, you also got uh, uh, IEDs all around Guadalajara, uh, which again used yeah. to be very nice. Uh, this again, this is Nueva Generacion. In February 2022, in the Michoacan township uh, of Aguilia, a roadside mine, another IED, damaged an army vehicle and injured 10 soldiers. Uh, also that month, an IED killed a farmer when he drove over to the device in his pickup truck. Um, on and on and on and on, and so and so, you know, th- this is this is Mexico. Um, uh, you know, and what what happened this week is is, is very dramatic, um, but it's part of a pattern. It's not a yeah. one-off. It's going to get worse. Um, this is war. This is warfare uh, that's unfolding. Uh, you know, and you can you can kind of debate whether it's an insurgency or something else. Um, uh, and I think that's a, that's actually a useful debate to have. Uh, but I think what is unquestionable is that is that it is a war. There is one force that could stop it. There really is. And it actually is Sedena and Simar. It is the Mexican armed forces, which mm-hmm. uh, if they possessed cohesion and I would argue a sense of duty to their own nation, uh, they would do so. Uh, but they don't. And the reason they don't, again, this gets to why we have this coalition statement now, is because they too are part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, and they too are working with the same forces that are setting off the IEDs at the macro level. It's terrible. Yeah. And it's so sad. And 
like you said, this is Mexico. Mm -hmm. And recently these figures came out about how AMLO's time in office is shaping up to be the most violent in modern Mexican history. Yes. And the new numbers are that a person disappears every hour under the current presidency. I believe that. <sighs> that is devastating. But... Um, Incredible, really, when you think about it. Uh, you know, if, if we could rewind back to the Calderon era. So he's in office 2006 to 2012. Uh, and there was there was a sentiment that, well, things can't possibly get worse, right? Because mm. that's the kickoff of the drug war. And with every subsequent presidency, it's gotten worse right. and worse and worse. And now with AMLO, uh, it's proceeding to depths that, it uh, is. Uh, you know, un, un, unforeseen. And what's interesting, I know we'll talk about this at some point, so I don't want to I don't want to leapfrog um, to where you want to take this conversation. But I see no prospect that any of his possible successors are going to do any better. Yeah. But he's still pointing the finger at other presidencies. You know, he recently was talking again about how under Felipe Calderón, Mexico was an Arco state. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you say? Necesitas uh, recuerda, uh, Mexico fue un narco estado con Calderón. And, you know, you, you watch said, it. He's been saying brazen. for years. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's true. He's deflecting. But that is very sad. And it's sad because these searches to look for the hidden graves, like you said, which is very sad, is now being suspended because yeah. of this occurrence. So, yeah. Um, okay, so I want to go into the fourth premise, um, and that is that the Mexican government is failing in its obligation to preserve its territory from use as a base of operations against its neighbors. We went into this a little bit, and we've also talked about it in a different podcast when we read, uh, when we talked about Ma Mike Pompeo's book, sure. where he talks about the ungoverned spaces and how they can often be used as like a breeding ground for terrorist groups. Right. So right. We, we, we've already talked about that, but um, there's also what was said about about how the largest portion of Russian intelligence personnel in the world right now is in Mexico. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the only thing to add to that, uh, beyond what we've said in previous podcasts and also in this one, uh, is, that, is that this actually is a very serious uh, obligation. And, yeah. uh, you know, what, what that incurs, and I'm not saying this in the sense of advocacy, but it is important to understand because policy flows from this, is that if you have a state, any, any state, that refuses to secure its own territory, that's being used as a base of operation against another state, then, then the state that is victimized uh, by that actually does have a positive right uh, to respond to it. Um, there was a famous uh, case in, in the 19th century, believe it or not, between the United States and Canada when there were, um, uh, won't go in depth into it, uh, but effectively uh, Irish rebels, Fenians, were, were using it, um, uh, were using, I believe, New York State as a base of operations against, uh, uh, you know, then. British uh, Canada. And um, uh, so kind of the principles of international law and practice were laid down, um, you know, concurrent to that. Uh, th th this is very similar uh, right now. Yeah. And so until so what Mexican uh, office holders and, you know, Mexican stewards of, of Mexican of the Mexican state, you know, to the extent that there are any, have to ask themselves is, uh, you know, how, how far do we want this to go? Right. And at what point does the United States because there will be a turn in governance at some point, and there will be a certain point at which um, I think we're closer to it than people think, that there will be a critical mass of people within the United States and in U.S. Right. governments asking, why don't we do something? 
Yeah. yeah. You'll have to tell me more about that. The New York, U.S. Canada. I will. Yes. Uh, for, for, for those of you on on, on Wikipedia, you can uh, look, it uh, yeah, look it up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and then we have our fifth bullet, which is that the Mexican government is failing to defend Mexican civic institutions and is increasingly antagonistic towards a free Mexican civil society. Absolutely. So there is so much, so much to back this up. Again, a yes. lot of it we've talked about, but. Um, one of the things that I've been reading about recently is that many people are claiming that they're being monitored in Mexico. Um, families of missing children, uh, lawyers, well-known journalists. With the Pegasus spyware. With that spyware. They, yes. they think that their phones are tapped and um, that people are able to monitor their calls, their encrypted messages, their emails, their calendar, all of it. And they're probably right. Yeah, they're yeah. probably right. They're probably right. Yeah, can I, if I can add something to this? Yeah, please do. Uh, so, so, so you're right. There, there is ample evidence that this Mexican regime, in particular, is is uh, really wants to turn back the clock to yeah. to the to the perfect dictatorship era, uh, and is, and is laboring very hard to establish. Um, to reestablish a de facto one-party state in Mexico, you know, in terms of attacks on the electoral institutions, um, on attacks on the press, its control of the press. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that, that most Mexican press actually receive subsidies mm -hmm. from the central government, which is crazy, but they do, and their and their coverage actually reflects that. So, so that that that's all happening. But uh, but you know from the U.S. side, uh, the reason that we wanted to include this was not just a was not just a toss in sort of a this is another bad thing that's happening uh, with Mexican civics. The reason we included this uh, and it's actually alluded to in one of the final bullets is that this now matters to us. Uh, you know we in the United States, uh, you know in terms of policy making toward Mexico, have we've been approving of post ninety four, really post ninety eight or post eighty eight. I'm sorry. Uh, Mexican moves toward toward you know democratic liberalization and so on, um, uh, but it's never been the relationship has never really been predicated upon that happening. There was just sort of a belief that it's happening; and it's a good thing. Uh, but if it hadn't happened, we probably still would have in Canada. We probably still would have liaised with Mexican elites in exactly the same way that we did. The case that we want to make is that is that we, uh, in failing to pay attention to that, in failing to value that as as a symptom and causative of our relationship mm -hmm. uh, in general, uh, we have failed ourselves um, in demanding the things that we ought to demand. And so it is time to start paying attention. Not 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 in the vein of like a democratization agenda. It's not what I'm getting at because this is in the Middle East. But but in terms of our of our neighbor. Uh, right there to return to authoritarianism in a way that is that is frankly kind of a criminal authoritarianism you know almost like a 1980s Panama scenario uh, is directly detrimental to us and so we have to start paying attention to that um, uh, not just for its own sake um, it, because you know frankly Mexico it's not that we don't care but Mexican right. civil society is, is not properly uh, on its own terms a concern of the United States right, but because right. it affects us Right. Yeah. And, you know, just since you brought it up to add a little bit of color to the journalist stuff, there was recently some numbers that came out saying that there's an attack on the press every 13 hours. And under the current president, under AMLO, the attacks against journalists have gone up 85 percent. When you say attacks, you don't mean rhetorical attacks. You mean violent attacks, right? That's a... Uh... Violence, Violence against okay. journalists. Yeah. yeah, it's the deadliest place in the world to be a journalist. Yeah. Yes. Can you imagine? Like the world's a big place. It's better to be. In, <laughs> it's better to be in Syria, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. Yeah. 
Well, and I'll go into our sixth premise um, in the interest of time, but that is that the Mexican government is a willing partner in a regional authoritarian leftist alliance that is anti-American, yes. actively interventionist, and increasingly an arena and base for hostile powers from outside the Western Hemisphere. Absolutely, yeah. The, this, uh, I mean, this plays again into the fail- failure to secure its own sovereignty, but it also right. uh, reflects the reality that, uh, that that Morena is a left-wing movement, uh, yeah. and it's very positive toward, uh, you know, nakedly anti American um, uh, regimes uh, elsewhere in the world, including in Havana, including in Caracas, including in Moscow, and uh, to a limited yeah. extent in Beijing. And uh, there is no question but that um, uh, it will continue to align itself in that direction uh, as much as it possibly can. Uh, I would encourage listeners, you know, we don't have time because we're kind of on our final three, four minutes here, but I encourage listeners to uh, look up the case of the Cuban doctors, which I'll put quotes around. Yeah. Uh, who Maybe been... I'll link it. Yeah, please. Thank yeah. you. Uh, thank you for doing that. Um, who have been flooding into Mexico, who are actually all intelligence agents. Uh, and the yeah. Mexican state is actively um, sponsoring that influx. And uh, unfortunately, it's something that the United States has not objected to, but we absolutely should. Yeah. The way he's also defended the presidents in Bolivia, in Peru, how he boycotted um, the Ninth Summit of the Americas because they wouldn't invite like Venezuela and Cuba yes, and Nicaragua. And Nicaragua. Well, so you, many examples. You and your family have suffered directly from this in Bolivia. Yeah, yes. In Bolivia, uh, because yeah. You want to talk about that briefly? I'm sorry. I, I should have. Well, uh... just, you know. Just in the interest of time, just that he granted asylum to Evo Morales left a very sour taste in the mouth of a lot of Bolivians. Sure. And then he's done it in so many other places in South America as well. Like the Peruvian president, Pedro Castillo, he claimed that he was still the legal and legitimate president of Peru and that he was ousted and put in jail because people were racist against indigenous people. And that's the same thing that he said about Evo, that people in Bolivia were racist and they organized a coup because he was indigenous all of these things, but there's a lot of examples of this that we could go into. AMLO is uh, siempre contra intervención, uh, so he's uh-huh. always against intervention, uh, until it's until it's a left-wing or communist uh, right. government, in which case he's happy to intervene to support. Exactly. And send the Mexican <laughs> Air Force to, to spirit them out. The hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, and then the seventh premise, which is the last one we'll give examples for today, is that the Mexican government actively interferes in the domestic electoral process of the United States. Yes, uh, that that is something that uh, you know you're probably going to see more from the Texas Public Policy Foundation on this because yes. uh, we're going to we're going to write on it because uh, it deserves a lot more attention and uh, exploration than it's received. Uh, but uh, you know the the you know for, for all their you know we talked about being contra intervención. Um, yeah. uh, you know they the the Mexican state AMLO. Former SRE uh, Secretary Ebrard, uh, all the rest, uh, you know, they speak very loudly when they think that the United States is intervening in Mexico, which we're which we're really not, or at least you know, probably not as much as we ought to be at this point. Um, uh, but they have no problem with with actively seeking to mobilize Mexican American yeah. voters, you know, which I like. I'm part of that cohort. Uh, I don't want to be mobilized by the Mexican state because uh, I'm, you know, I'm a United States citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but they they feel free to do it. They think it's perfectly fine to uh, you know to comment on legislation. To attack. they've been particularly uh, you know vehement in attacking um, uh, Governor DeSantis and you know, and Abbott uh, and 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 Governor Abbott. Yeah. That's exactly right uh, because because they're racist and they're against Mexicans and this and that. Yeah. And whatever. But, uh, but uh, you know, that, that um, feeling that they have, that they are free to, uh, to frankly engage in open electioneering within the United right. States in order to sway uh, American elections uh, is something that we ought to have zero tolerance for. We do tolerate it, again, cause, mostly because the Biden administration is 
incompetent at best. And again, that's a charitable explanation. Um, uh, but uh, it, it, it needs to stop, and yeah. uh, it's something that you're going to be hearing much more from us about uh, in the months to come. Yeah. Also, how presumptuous that they think they have that power. But... Well, I mean, I mean, look, if the, if the United States is so bad, right, if the United yeah. States is so racist, then tell me why, uh, you, know, you know, what's the revealed preference of the migration of millions of Mexicans here? Yeah. 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 It might, not be as bad. It's my, it might not be as bad as Mexico. Well, since you brought up um, Ebrard and interventionism, sure. I wanted to share with our followers that he was recently in Florida, in Miami, um, and he had a meeting of like Mexican-American people there. That's and right. He said he would mobilize them and that he would be back and hold an even bigger meeting to make sure that people are voting against the racist um, migration laws that we have that they have in Florida. Yes. Right. And uh, another thing about Ebrard is that you said former already, but we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet, is that he stepped down and he's going to fully run for president. He did, and uh, and, I, and I think what we uh, what we ought to do is save that for uh, for, for, next, the ne- for, for the next podcast because we're almost to out of time. Into, yeah. but there's a lot of time. I think I think though the the big thing that we want to get across on this one is that the statement is out today. The statement on U.S.-Mexico relations. Go to TexasPolicy.com yep. uh, and see it. It will be featured prominently there. Um, but uh, you know, you know, for those of you who are interested in it, uh, you know, definitely feel free to share it. Uh, if you want to be a signatory on it, let us know. Um, uh, it's not a closed list. Uh, but it's something that I would encourage uh, everyone who's interested in this topic in particular uh, to start getting engaged in. Uh, we are not against Mexico and the Mexicans, uh, but I think at this point it's fair to say we are against the Mexican state and regime. Um, uh, and that's a sad situation to be in, but we must always operate in realism. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.